Today we're going to be uh, completing our, our series through the book of Malachi. Woohoo! We get the whole thing. We got it. Amen. Yes. So um, it's the last book in the Old Testament, and it's that way not only in position but also in terms of chronology. Um, so Malachi records God's final word to his people before he spoke again through John the Baptist, who served as the final messianic prophet. John followed Malachi in order to call the people to repentance in preparation for the first coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. 400 years separated Malachi and John the Baptist. And yet, as we will see in our text today, uh, God is the author of Scripture, and 400 years was nothing to him because he just picks it right up where he left off. The connection between Malachi and John is quite strong. Indeed, the final words of the Old Testament just flow right into John's message in the opening of the New Testament period. And by the way, if you ever get confused about what is meant by Old Testament or New Testament, it ultimately means new, new old promise and new promise, if you will, or old covenant and new covenant. Um, but maybe the easiest way to think of it is that the Old Testament was written before Jesus was born and the New Testament was written after Jesus was born. That's an easy way to remember it. Let's read our text. We covered the first four verses last week, and we'll cover the last three verses today. And these, these are the final written words of God prior to the first coming of Christ. We're in verse 18 of chapter 4, again, the final words of the Old Testament. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. And then we go back to this direct quotation of God, which most of the book of Malachi has been just directly God speaking. That's why we titled the series, God Says. So here in chapter 4, God says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. As explained last time, the big idea here is that we need to get ready for the return of Christ. And although perhaps Malachi was unaware, we now know that the coming of Christ happens in two parts. There was the first coming, a future event for Malachi, and there is the second coming, a future event for us all. So understand that this final Old Testament prophecy was fulfilled in part when Jesus came the first time, and it will be fulfilled completely at his return, which could happen today. One thing that's very clear from Malachi, as, we, uh, as well as all of the prophets and later the writers of the New Testament, is that we ought to spend time making sure we are ready for this great and terrible day of the Lord. We ought to have a certain kind of fear, uh, a, a holy reverence for the sobering realities that are coming back with Jesus. Those realities are the best news imaginable for the remnant, for this faithful remnant we've been reading about, but they are the worst news imaginable for everybody else. We've discussed how it is that anyone may be included in this faithful remnant, which really is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As this passage and the verses before make clear, the remnant are those who fear God, meaning those who believe God is who He says He is and that God is going to do what He says He will do. This is also what we mean when we talk about having faith in God. As we now understand more fully than Malachi could have, this faith in God and His promise means believing in Jesus Christ, who Malachi calls the Son of Righteousness, risen with healing in its wings. Now, let's be honest. Even among believers, 
The truth is that most of us do not live most of the time with a proper reverence for the return of Christ. Am I right? Is it just me? Some of us are too distracted by the things of this world. That's my problem sometimes. But other times, if I'm honest with you, that is not my problem. Confession, sometimes I can hardly bear what it means to think about the return, so I just put it out of my mind. But folks, when I suppress my reverence for the second coming or avoid consciousness, consciousness of the potential immediacy of Christ's return, the result is that I do not live as I should especially when it comes to sharing the gospel with those whose last chance could be today. We need to fear, at least to the point of revering, the return of Christ if we are to live as he has called us to live in these last days. We ought to work toward a constant awareness of the second coming of our Savior, even to the point of being uncomfortable. I fully believe that a proper reverence for the return is one of the keys to revival. Which again is the major theme of Malachi. That is the spiritual renewal of the people of God to the point that unbelievers are drawn to Christ. Talk about awakening. We'll never have awakening until the church is revived. Awakening for our land comes after revival for the church. I have a feeling I'm not the only one who needs to grow in my reverence for the return in order to be revived. Thankfully, God has given us this text. And in it, I see five steps to return reverence. We covered the last three steps last time, not going to lie. That was one of the toughest sermons I've ever preached. Quite a few of you didn't make it last week. Lucky I hate to even review that message because it was so difficult, but this all goes together. So let's review the first three steps to gaining a proper reverence for the return of Christ. From last week, step one is this. Believe God sees every person as either righteous or wicked. As discussed, verse 18 of chapter 3, as well as the preceding verses, make this point clear. God will distinguish between the righteous and the wicked. And these are the only two categories from his perspective. I'll ask one more time, how does a person move from the human default mode of wickedness before God to being declared righteous by Him instead? Only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and what He did on the cross. I know it's difficult to accept that God sees every single person as either righteous or wicked because some of the folks we know who are not saved, do not profess faith in Christ, and are therefore still wicked according to God, seem to be truly wonderful people. They do. And from my perspective, some of them absolutely are wonderful people. The problem with that statement is that my perspective is not what matters. We are talking about how God sees people. I'm talking about how God saw me before I was made righteous by grace through faith in Christ. Sometimes we read certain parts of the Bible and we can hardly take how God judges people so harshly, right? But that's the problem. We are looking at people from our perspective, not God's. Our perspective may be that most people are pretty good. The problem is that we are not the judge. But I mean, it's very, very hard. When you realize how God actually sees people. Like when God tells the nation of Israel to wipe out the people of Canaan, right? I mean, granted, they were incredibly evil, even from our perspective. But let's be real. God's perspective was that they were so wicked that they all needed to be put to death. That's hard. Now, apparently, some of those people chose faith in Yahweh God and receiving His salvation. They were not killed. 
but we're treated equally from that point forward within the family of God. Rahab is the prime example from Canaan, and there's evidence of other folks being spared of, by faith as well. But regardless, the rest of the Canaanites were driven out or killed by God's command. If they did not flee, they were put to death. God made it very clear that he saw the Canaanites as utterly wicked, one and all. And he ordered that they be massacred down to the last person. Let's be honest. This is terribly hard for us to accept. Terribly hard. I would point out that this was a very specific situation and God never asked for such a thing ever again. But fellow believer, you might as well deal with the fact that God did actually call on his people to do this because every pseudo-skeptic, every pseudo-educated skeptic uh, out there is going to bring up this reality when you try to tell them about God. I suggest you embrace this historical fact under the heading of this theological truth. God sees everyone as either righteous or wicked. You may have noticed that a world full of sinful humans wants to tell our holy God how he should be. They think they get to define God. As his people, we need to make sure that we are not doing the same thing. Regardless, this is a very hard truth to accept. While we're at it, have you ever really thought about the flood? One man, Noah, had faith. Because of that faith, Noah found grace in God's eyes. And because of that faith, he was declared by God to be righteous. Interestingly, God said, I'll save the rest of your family too. And he rescued them all in his ark-shaped floating rapture mobile. But it's also true that every other man, woman, and child was wiped from the face of the earth. They drowned, folks. They died. All of them. How could God do that? How could he? The answer lies in believing what the Bible teaches, which is that God sees every person as either righteous or wicked. This is the explanation for the cleansing of the earth by water, and it will also be the explanation of the earth's purification by fire, which is yet to come. On that day, as in the flood, only the righteous, however few, will be saved. Do you think this might be a little bit countercultural? What were we thinking doing door hangers yesterday? I, I don't know. I, Maybe God did. Do you think clips of me saying things like this on YouTube will make me popular? Yeah, and it gets even worse. Because the second step to revering the return, which again we covered last week, is this. Believe the wicked will be burned to ashes. Extreme words. Straight from the text. Quickly look back with me and you'll see there's no way around this. God literally says in verse 1, and I quote, They will be set ablaze. Neither root nor branch will be left. And in verse 3, he says the righteous remnant will tread on their ashes. That's what God says. As it's clear throughout Scripture, the fire is coming and there will be no escape for the wicked. Those who do not fear God, which means they have not heeded Him nor received His salvation, which is now so clearly offered in Jesus Christ. Nothing causes me to revere the return like believing this truth. I don't want to believe it. I do not want to believe this. I loathe thinking about it. This absolutely shreds me. I was depressed all of Sunday and half of Monday over this truth. And it hit me various other times during the week. Many of history's greatest theologians struggled with depression. Personally, I think this truth is the reason. What then? Should I reject this truth? Just to feel better? Soothe my own sadness? Do I get to make up my own truth, one I like better than what is actually true? And what if this is true? Would I do better to reluctantly accept it? Or what would be the consequences of denying it in order to feel better? 
If indeed it is actually true that the wicked will be judged and sent to an eternal hell. Some have written books trying to figure out a way out to cut this message out of the Bible. But it is impossible to believe the Bible and not believe in final judgment by fire. I could literally quote verses of Scripture for the rest of our time today to prove to you that the Bible is clear on this. And by the way, Jesus himself spoke of fiery judgment several times. To revere and fear the return as we should, we must actually believe the wicked will be burned to ashes. And as we discussed, their souls will continue to burn forever. It's absolutely the most terrible thought that you could ever imagine. But that does not make what God has said untrue. Thankfully, that was the bad news. And step three to a proper reverence of the return of Christ, also from last week, is the good news. Believe the righteous will be healed and illumined for eternity. The sun, not S-O-N, S-U-N, for a reason. The sun of righteousness. This great light of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. As we establish, this is a reference to the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, who is both the great physician, the healer, and the light of the world, the son of righteousness. We are made righteous only through our faith in him. Our hope for healing and illumination at his return is in him, and the results will be everlasting. As people who truly believe this way about the return, we're not terrified or dreading it for ourselves, but then how must we fear it or revere it? We revere the return in many ways, like in making sure we're found, by, found to be serving the Lord when He comes. But especially we revere the return in sharing the gospel with those who are in desperate need of salvation. And because of this fear or reverence, we would want to do so with urgency. If you truly believe you had, if you believed you had the cure for cancer, Would you not share it with others, particularly if you knew that they had cancer? And yet we're often silent about the eternal life that is ours in Christ. If you really believe that you are to be healed and illumined, or we might say purified of darkness by God's light, and this for eternity because of your faith in Jesus, if you really believe this, you will be motivated to get the word out before it is too late for those who need to hear it. That was a long review of last Sunday's message, but these were not points that could be briefly mentioned. So picking up our text where we left off last time, let's look at verse 4 and see how else we should prepare for the return of Christ. In verse 4, God says, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. The admonition to keep the law of God The law of Moses, the law of God, is a constant refrain throughout the Bible. But what is the significance of its placement in the middle of a passage about preparing for the return of the the, the Messiah? In fact, this is not out of place at all. If you look back through the preceding passage, you'll see a consistent back and forth between the faith of this remnant who fears God and the fact that they, unlike most people, actually obey or serve God. We need to consider this because in our time, the tendency is to think you can just believe in Jesus and then live however you want. Nothing could be further from the truth. As James made clear in his book, faith that does not result in works is empty or dead, which means it's powerless to save. The necessity of obedience is also clear in our text today as we just read. So step four to return reverence is this, believe the righteous prove themselves by obedience. If you do not believe this truth, you will not revere or prepare for the return of Christ as you should. Listen, obedience matters. And the very thing we need to obey is the law of God as recorded by His servant, 
Moses. I would encourage you to read again the recounting of the powerful way God handed down His law. You can start in Exodus chapter 19 and read the story once more. I'll just say that most of you have forgotten, I bet, some of the light show that was put on by God when He was handing down His law in written form. When Yahweh decided to lay down the law, as it were, He flat out showed up, perhaps like never before or since. There was lightning and fire and earthquakes and whirlwinds and an audible voice from God. As, as he passed by, Moses saw the backside of his glory. I wonder what that looked like. But everyone could see the stone tablets that had been cut out of the stone, out, 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 of, the, out of the mountain and chiseled upon by the finger of God. The whole thing was unprecedented in terms of the masses, not just one person, but the masses actually experiencing God's presence in an undeniable way. We might have to look to the biblical prophecies of the return of Christ to see a repeat of such an obviously supernatural example of heaven coming down to earth. We had the written word, the living word is coming. Today, People say they want God to reveal himself and prove himself. We actually have done that several times. But none more spectacular than at the mountain called Horeb, also known as Sinai. I can assure you that when Moses received the law of God, not one of a million or so witnesses questioned whether it had come from God. One might even say there was no room for faith in that instance because there was no room for doubt. The same will be true at the return. Everyone will see. No room for doubt, which is part of why it will be too late to believe at that point. But that's a rabbit I won't chase today. So what is this law of God? I mean, what are we really talking about in terms of content? Well, the heart of God's law is what we call the Ten Commandments, or if you went to seminary, the Decalogue. Nobody else has ever heard that. Why they have different words for seminarians than anybody else, I don't know. The Ten Commandments. But hear me say that there is much more to it than that. I can't take time to go into detail, but understand that what is really meant here by the law of Moses is everything God ever commanded for His people to do or not do. Jesus referred to the Old Testament as the law and the prophets. In general, the law are those parts of the Bible that tells us, tell us what God has declared as right and wrong, and the prophets are those parts of the Bible where the law is applied to real-life situations. So in many ways, it is all God's law, also known as Torah, which means law, and is generally a Hebraic reference to the whole thing. Even the wisdom literature like Psalms and Proverbs is more about God's law than any other single topic. So really, as a starting point, we are talking about the Old Testament when we talk about the law of God. That's Genesis through Malachi. For the record, you might think of the New Testament as inspired commentary on the Old Testament, complete with Jesus' personal take on it, which is pretty important since He was God in the flesh. There are some laws that simply no longer apply in a specific sense because we're not Jews and there's no temple and the sacrificial system ended with Christ. But the point we need to get is that the faithful remnant continues to live according to the law of God, particularly the moral law or anything God has said about that which is right and that which is wrong. This means that those who continue to steal or practice witchcraft or murder or bear false witness or worship idols or practice sexual immorality or those who regularly disobey the clear moral commands of God prove that they do not fear God and are not part of the righteous remnant regardless of how emphatically they may identify themselves as such. The righteous prove themselves by obedience to the law of God. You can count on true followers of Jesus to actually follow Him, which absolutely means following God's law. And someone says, well, didn't Jesus say the law no longer applies? Not even close. Jesus said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Do not 
think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. What did Jesus mean by this famous phrase? Well, one thing he clearly meant is that he did not come to abolish the law. Right? That's exactly what Jesus said. I did not come to abolish it. This means the law is not abolished. Right? Maybe I'm being obvious and silly, but you would be surprised how many people basically think the law of God is abolished for Christians. Or that we no longer need to seek to follow God's law with all of our hearts. At the least, many Christians do not think knowing and obeying God's law is really that important because, hey, we've got our golden ticket already. It's all about grace now, not law. It's like a, it's a different age, so it's a different God, I guess. Guys, that is messed up. The law is not abolished. What did Jesus mean when he said that he came to fulfill the law? I've heard many fine explanations, but let me give you my take. Jesus came to fully obey the law. That's at least part of what he meant. And who are we striving to be like? Right, Jesus is the only human being to ever follow the law of God perfectly, completely. He came to show us that it could be done, and he came to show us how to do it. Additionally, the Bible says Jesus gave his followers and uh, gave us his, the same power that he had to obey the law of God, that of the Holy Spirit. So know this, if you are a believer, the voice telling you that you cannot possibly obey God's law or that you do not need to do so is not the voice of God. Because in Christ and by the Spirit, you can. But how do we know where to draw the line between legalism and true observance of God's law? As God intends. Look at the life of Jesus. He hated legalism. He picked heads of wheat to eat on the Sabbath. And when they called him on it, he told them, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man. You need to get the heart of this thing, people basically what he said. That's just one example of Jesus showing us what really matters when it comes to the law. He did not submit to nonsense. He did not bow to the ridiculous, overzealous legalism of the Pharisees. And yet we are told that he completely fulfilled the law of God. That means Jesus obeyed God's law completely, just as God intended for it to be obeyed. Our Savior showed us the way. I think additionally Jesus meant that he would complete the law, meaning that there was more of God's law that was left to be revealed or at least to be explained better. As I mentioned, almost like an inspired commentary. The apostles and a few others among Christ's closest followers wrote the New Testament, which contains commands from Christ, that is the law of Christ, all of which is based upon the Mosaic law, but reaffirmed and further explained by Jesus. In this way, Jesus fulfilled or completed the law. The Bible is clear right here in the final verses of Malachi, as well as in many other places, that the remnant obeys the law of God. While Christ did so perfectly, we will fail at certain points until our glorification at the return. But make no mistake, the righteous remnant makes a habit of remembering and practicing God's law. We confess and repent as needed, but we certainly do not dismiss the law of God. Never. We're considered righteous because of faith, as I keep explaining, but you cannot divorce obedience from God's declaration of your righteousness. Let me put it this way. Righteous standing will always result in righteous behavior. Those who are saved live a life of obedience. Just as an angel declares from heaven in John's Revelation, chapter 14 of Revelation, verse 12, here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. That's pretty clear, isn't it? The true saints, that is true believers, are those who persevere, and they persevere in doing two things. They keep the commandments and they remain they maintain faith in Jesus. To the, to the current point, we must affirm that true faith in Jesus always results in obedience to the law of God. We could go on forever about the law 
uh, as the Apostle Paul often did, (laughs) and how it relates to the New Testament. But all of this brings us to a simple point that I really want to make, which is this. The law of God is a wonderful thing. As a believer, you should not cringe when you hear that God expects you to keep His law. The law God revealed through Moses is sweeter than honey, as one psalmist put it. On another place, he writes, those who love your law have great peace and nothing causes them to stumble. In fact, the goodness and the sweetness and the blessings and the benefits of knowing and following the law of God is a theme woven throughout the Bible, both Old and New Testaments. There is great freedom in having the power to obey God's law. Why? Because the law of God is simply the very best way to live on this earth. Without it, we are lost in darkness and confusion. Without God's law, humans might even get to the point, believe it or not, when they can't understand something so fundamental as the fact that God made us as males and females. Can you imagine ever discounting God's law to the extreme that society might arrive at such a point of confusion? Listen, the law of God protects you from evil and folly and self-destruction. And it keeps you from losing your way in a dark and dying world. God's law guides your steps like a light or a lamp. If you want to be a strong, joyful, impactful, outstanding person, study and obey the law of God. Thank the Lord that He's shown us how to live an abundant life, not leaving us to the wisdom of this world which leads only to death. Thank God also that Jesus came to give us the spiritual power and the freedom to actually follow His law, which is nothing less than a roadmap to abundant, joyful meaningful living. Listen, if somehow, somewhere, you got the idea that God's law no longer applies to a person saved by grace, you are gravely mistaken. God wants to make sure, whether through Malachi or James or John or whomever's writing his inspired word, that we do not imagine that belief in Jesus somehow gives us the freedom to disobey. God's law is is there for our own protection, our own help. It would not be freedom to disobey it. No, disobedience to God is slavery to Satan, who only wants to destroy us. The Spirit of Christ in us actually frees us to obey and to thereby stay free from bondage to sin. Those who ignore the law of God who think they have a license to sin because of grace will not be ready for the return. Some may even be deceiving themselves regarding their own salvation. To properly revere the return, start believing that the righteous prove themselves by obedience to the law of God. And the final step to return reverence as revealed by God through Malachi is this. Join God's effort to provide an opportunity for restoration to all. God says, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Now I'll need to do some explaining to show you how my point flows from this text, so bear with me. The Bible says some very interesting things about the prophet Elijah. He's one of only two people to have been taken to heaven without dying. Elijah performed unprecedented miracles when he was alive. He appeared with Moses when Jesus was gloriously transfigured before three of his disciples. Three of his disciples. In many ways, Elijah is the chief of the prophets. Elijah is mentioned twice in Malachi, both here and also in chapter 3, verse 1, where he's referred to as God's messenger and the one who will prepare the way for the Messiah. But here's the crazy thing. Malachi is describing Elijah's involvement in a future event. Elijah's time on earth was hundreds of years before Malachi. So what gives? Is there going to be another Elijah? Will his name be Elijah? Will he just like appear as an adult? We don't have to really wonder about these things. 
Because the New Testament makes very clear that John the Baptist fulfilled this prophecy as a type of Elijah. Zacharias, John's father, said as much after the visit from the angel. In a text we looked at last week, Jesus affirmed this as well in Matthew eleven fourteen. Don't have time to go there, but just know Jesus made this really clear that John the Baptist fulfilled this prophecy about Elijah. That he was in fact the Elijah of whom prophets like Malachi foretold. Understand that this prophecy about Elijah and others like it were fulfilled in John the Baptist. The one who prepared the way for Jesus. Now, some Bible scholars who believe that also believe there will be another Elijah who does more in the future. And that's possible but I personally don't find this to be a clear promise of scripture. In other words I wouldn't count on yet another Elijah before the return. If you'll recall from last week, I told you I hold on very loosely to anything that might mean something else needs to happen before the return. I look for the return at any moment. In other words, I am not looking for another Elijah. Instead, I am looking for Jesus to come back at any moment. I'm waiting for Jesus. Anybody else? Amen? <laughs> not another Elijah and not anyone else. I hate to chase this rabbit, but many of you are wanting to ask, what about the Antichrist? Well, personally, I think the main dude already lived and died. That's my loosely held opinion. I doubt it's the majority opinion here today. I may be wrong. But more importantly, there have been many Antichrists, and there will be others, just as Jesus promised. For the record, this is what most of the great theologians of history also believed, that the Antichrist already came. So I'm in good company, at least. If you must know, I think the main Antichrist was Nero in the generation that it was prophesied. And I, again, may be wrong, but don't think this is some random idea. I've studied on this a lot. There are reasons behind my opinion, but hey, maybe it's Nikolai Carpathia, fictional. Or maybe it's the latest popular president that has messianic tendencies. How many presidents have some people thought would maybe the Antichrist? Maybe it's Putin or Zelensky. I don't know, whatever your perspective is. I'm, I'm, I'm joking about that, but, but some people have actually said as much, by the way, about both of those guys. I mean, they're over there in a country where it's supposedly going to come from and all this stuff. They're nearby. Maybe it was Hitler. I think it was one Antichrist. Maybe it was Joseph Smith. I don't know. I don't know what I don't know. Have I said that before? I don't know what I don't know. But, folks, I'm not looking for the Antichrist. No. I'm looking for Jesus. Every day. Now, the reason some say there's another Elijah to come is that John the Baptist did not finish the job. He was to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and, and to each other. And some say this has not happened, so there must be another Elijah. And they, there's a talk about a prophet that may come, and they just kind of put that in there. Personally, I don't see our text promising an instantaneous restoration of every single father-child relationship on earth. But just as easily, God is saying that this restoration would begin under John and continue until its completion. So the question is, did this mysterious restoration of fathers and children begin under John the Baptist? And has it continued? The answer is yes. But to get that, we need to understand what God really meant by this phrase. What is meant by the idea of turning children to their fathers and fathers to their children? When Malachi wrote this, were most parents and children really at war? I don't think so. In that culture, they had pretty strong families, actually. Of course, there is a literal piece to this as children who rebel from God often rebel from good parents, and those children will typically want to restore their relationship with their parents if they repent and get right with God. But by and large, I think this phrase should be taken as a metaphorical and prophetic reference to the idea of a global-sized restoration of the relationship between God and in man. We are the children. He is the father. Keep in mind 
that restoration between God and His children is the theme of the entire book of Malachi. I mean, this comes up repeatedly. And again, there's often a literal connotation too, but the main reason I believe this is mostly a reference to God and His people is in what actually wound up happening as the fulfillment of this prophecy began. Often prophetic language is, is, is fulfilled in just like a slightly different way. It's just something about prophetic language. We see that over and over. What did John actually do in, this, in his ministry? He began a process of restoration between God the Father and His children, that is, His people. As we also know, once the Holy Spirit came, this restoration, started by John, went global. John's basic message was, return to the Father, that is, repent, and He will return to you. And whom did John point for the power to make this restoration happen? The Son of God, the Lamb of God, who had come to take away the sins of the world, Jesus Christ. I know this gets kind of deep, so hang with me. But the point is that a global-sized restoration of the relationship between the Heavenly Father and His children began with the ministry of John, who Jesus said came in the spirit of Elijah. And so I think that's exactly how the final words of this Old Testament prophecy came true. I believe God is using this metaphor of relational restoration between fathers and children to point to the restoration of mankind's relationship with God, that which was originally broken in the Garden of Eden. This is also why there's nothing in our text about mothers. Well, what, don't moms matter? Of course they do. Why didn't Malachi say something about children and moms or children and parents instead of singling out fathers? Maybe because the real point here is about our relationship with God and God is always called our Father. I said it started with John, but that was only the beginning. This call to restoration with God has been passed on to us through the apostles and through others like Justin Martyr and Clement of Rome and later through uh, men of God like John Huss and Wycliffe and others and then through the great reformers like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and later uh, the Wesleys and missionaries like William Carey and Hudson Taylor and Adoniram Judson and others and even through more recent evangelists like D.L. Moody and Billy Graham and so many more, maybe even including some of you if indeed you've ever shared the gospel with another living soul. In total, through the efforts of those who have followed in the steps of John the Baptist, he was first. Perhaps a billion or more of God's foreknown children have been restored to their father by faith in the Son, Jesus Christ. And this promise continues to come true. Understand that there are more followers of Christ today than ever before in human history. There have been more believers every year since the first, uh, first coming until now. And so in that sense, John the Baptist, who was a type of Elijah, has accomplished what he started. How many hearts have been restored to the Father since John the Baptist began as a lone voice crying in the wilderness? Many. Now let's go ahead and remember what the angel said to John's dad just before he was born. And notice the angel's well aware of Malachi's text, refers back to it, Malachi's text records the last words God had said to the people prior to this. And here we have an angel showing up at the beginning of the New Testament. God speaking again. The angel says of John the Baptist, soon to be born. And he, John, will turn many of the sons of Israel back to their Lord, their God. It is he who will go as forerunner before Christ in the spirit and power of Elijah. To turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Remember I said the New Testament is like an inspired commentary on the Old Testament? And isn't it clear that the angel interpreted the last words of Malachi to be about a great restoration between God the Father and His children? These verses are so rich, but at the sake of time, just notice how clearly this angel is referring back to parts of Malachi 4, the last time God had spoken, 400 years earlier. And he's saying that Malachi's prophecy about Elijah is soon to be fulfilled in John. He makes the link. I didn't make the link. The angel made the link. 
Notice also that the angel does not say John will turn all of them back to the Lord, but many. And yet there is no limit placed on who will hear the message or who will have an opportunity. We know that John preached to any who would listen. And Jesus said for those who follow in his footsteps to go to all nations, even to the ends of the earth. What I'm saying is that the last portion of the last book in the Old Testament is a foreshadowing of the Great Commission. The call to preach the gospel of restoration to all the world. I'm saying that in order to gain a proper reverence for the return, you need to join this effort. But why else would you do so? Why else would you share the gospel message? Well, it's right there on the back of your Go Church t-shirt. Anybody? Our slogan, because of love. If you revere or even fear the return of Christ, meaning you know what is coming for unbelievers, how could you not join with John in his message of repentance and faith? Beyond this, again, the more you join God in this effort to give an opportunity to all, the more you'll find that you are revering the return. Or perhaps you think God will just, God will just tell them without your help. Read Romans chapter 10, which tells us that people are saved when they believe, but it also says that they won't believe until they hear. As Paul puts it there, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, the gospel. And then Paul goes on to say, how will they hear without a preacher? This absolutely means that proclamation of the gospel message is essential if people are going to be restored to God. This fact was established from the beginning through John the Baptist, the first gospel preacher. His proclamation was essential for preparing the way of Christ at the first coming. It was a big deal, talked about in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But Jesus later made clear that we are all called to follow this legacy of John. After all, John is dead, folks. He ain't still out there preaching. His time on earth is done, but we are still here. We all have our time. Have you not realized that your proclamation is equally as essential as John's in preparing the way for the second coming? This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You here in this room are the proclaimers of this generation. And folks, through John there came to be a remnant who heard and believed before the first coming. And through you and me, there will be a remnant who hears and believes before the second coming. Will they all believe? Of course not. But God wants them all to hear, nonetheless. John was faithful with his part. Are you faithful with yours? You'll never fully revere the return until you join God's effort to provide an opportunity for restoration to all. Now, don't miss what we who proclaim this gospel of the second coming are offering to the people. What are we offering people? We're offering restoration. Remember the heart passage of Malachi, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord. This was John's message as well. He preached a message of spiritual restoration. That is the restoration of the relationship between God the Father and the people who will become His children, which only happens through repentant faith in the only Savior, Jesus Christ. Can you see that if we really believe everyone has a chance to be restored, everybody should be given the opportunity. Some of you are on a theological perspective. I'll just say that you at least know that you don't know, right? <laughs> they could be restored if that's where you're at. Either way, it will greatly impact your reverence for the return of Christ. If you just think of that person, should I, do I dare say as your responsibility? Isn't that really what Romans 10 teaches? How will they know without a preacher? I mean, the clock is ticking, folks. People write books about how we can know it's near the end. Maybe instead of writing books on that, we should be actually doing the work we're called to do. 
No offense to whoever wrote those books. Maybe God led them to. I don't know. Not the point. I'm not going to write that book. I'm just going to keep doing what God has told us to do. Preaching his gospel to people. Giving them an opportunity for restoration. I believe the people I meet are meant to have an opportunity. I think God loves the whole world. He's not willing that any should perish. I also believe it's necessary that they hear which puts a heavy weight. I think we should have that heavy weight. I think it's part of revering the return of Christ. Conversely, if I don't really believe they're all supposed to have a chance, or worse, if I don't believe they really even need to hear the gospel from a real-life person like me, I might go and build a commune. Let's go to Idaho. Sound good. I might just sequester myself from this world until Jesus comes to get me. But that would not be to revere his return, no. And if I don't think it's on me to do the work of preparing the way like John, it also demonstrates, frankly, that perhaps I am not part of the remnant. Because, folks, the remnant does the work until the master returns. That's from two weeks ago. The remnant serves God. That's what we do. By the way, quick advertisement. On Saturday, July 23rd, I know all of you are writing that down. On Saturday, July 23rd, you don't know what I'm going to say, but you know it's going to be good. So you're putting this on your calendar right now. We will have a lengthy training seminar. Lengthy. You know, we'll have a couple hours, have lunch, a couple more hours. We'll have a seminar on how to share your faith in a lost and dying world. Just put that date down, July 23rd. Plan to be there if you can at all. I think it'll be here. Even though it's a Saturday, we'll try to rent this, uh, probably rent the black box or something. We have a guest, a special guest coming to lead us. It's going to be great. Now look back at our text one last time. The final words in our Old Testament are these, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Thankfully, this is a reference to what God is not going to do. He says, I'm sending my messenger who will offer restoration so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Now, this is very important. The word curse here is the same word God used for what was supposed to happen to those wicked Canaanites that I talked about. As I mentioned, they were to be killed to the last person. Tough stuff. As my translation of Scripture puts it, they were to be placed under the ban. That basically means a, a ban of not getting to go on living, if you really want to know the truth. Some translations use this word curse. They were placed under the curse. That's the same word in the Hebrew as was used here in our text today. And this meant that God had decreed in a curse like that. It was a decree that they were to be utterly wiped out off the face of the earth. Every last one of them. So again, this is the same God, same word God uses here, translated as a curse. And so what I'm saying is that when this word is used, it means everything in the land dies. Everything, no hope, no chance, no restoration for anyone. God says, this is what I am not going to do with the earth at the end. God says, I'm not going to wipe everyone out. Instead, there will be an opportunity for restoration offered to whosoever, whosoever believes. And further, what he's really saying is that because some will return, not all will be burned. <laughs> God will not smite the land with a kind of curse that means everything and everyone dies. No, in fact, this new opportunity earned for us on the cross by Christ, offered by those who proclaim the gospel like John, has been made available to all for about 2,000 years now. And because of this promise, God has not wiped us out. Sometimes we're like, I don't know how God waits. When is he going to just wipe us all out? Well, we have this promise. He's not going to do that. He's not going to wipe us out like the Canaanites. The spirit of the last couple of verses of our Old Testament is that there'll be a time. Been a couple thousand years so far. There'll be times, there'll be moments, there'll be movements, there'll be sweeping, powerful movements of God. He'll use prophets, um, apostles, now preachers and evangelists and missionaries, also known as church planters. But listen and hear this. If the movement is going to be global and if it's going to be exponential, he will also use everyday disciples like yourselves 
to offer an opportunity for a restored relationship with God to anyone who will listen. God has not come with a curse or destruction. No, instead there have been and there will always be revivals and awakenings and great missionary movements along the way. And in the end, the entire world will have had their chance because God is patient and slow to anger and abounding in compassion. Further, when He does come, many will be rescued because they have trusted in Jesus Christ. As James put it, dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who patiently wait for the rains in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripen. You too must be patient. Take courage for the coming of the Lord is near. God is patient for the harvest. He waits. Maybe he's waiting on you. Today you have an opportunity to be reconciled to God through faith in Christ. You cannot claim to have never heard. Why? Because you're here. And I've shared the gospel with you. The hard parts and the good parts. Jesus is waiting. He's ready to save you if you will surrender to him. Fearing or revering God means trusting in his Savior for salvation. The opportunity is in front of you. I hope you decide today to put your trust in Jesus Christ and be baptized in his name as soon as possible in order to begin an obedient, restored relationship with the Lord who at that point will become your perfect heavenly father. Do you revere the return of Christ? Really, do you fear the return of Christ in a certain way? Do you live in the constant awareness that the great and terrible day of the Lord could be today? Is it going to be great for you or terrible? Today, if you return to God, He will return to you. Today, if you put your trust in Christ, He will take away your wickedness and grant you His righteousness in return. What a deal. I want to give you the opportunity to turn to Jesus and to receive His indescribable gift of grace. Would you pray with me? And if you're one who wants to receive God's gift of grace... I'm not going to lie to you. You really do have to believe. You can't just pray a prayer that you don't really mean and think it's going to mean a thing. But you can turn to Jesus today. His Spirit is here and He will help you. If you find yourself moved by that Spirit, I would ask you right now in your heart to just say, Yes, to God's plan of salvation for your life. He says if we want to come to God, we've got to first believe that He exists and is a rewarder of those who seek Him. Hebrews eleven six. 6. Do, do you believe He's there? Do you believe He'll give you what He's promised? That's what it means to fear God, to believe He's who He says He is, believe He's going to do what He says He's going to do. He said He'd save you if you turn to Jesus Christ, His Savior. Can you do that right now in your heart? It's not magic words. But it is a moment when God will work in your heart and save you for eternity. Would you turn to Jesus? Just cry out to Jesus like the criminal on the cross. Put your faith in Him and He will save you. Thank you, God, for this study of Malachi. Thank you that you've spoken in my life in so many ways and, and I've grown and I hope it's true for others. Thank you for the power of your word. And uh, Lord, as we launch into this new season and we're getting ready to uh, have a time of really outreach and different kind of sermons, Lord, uh, as we're just taking a season here coming up starting with Easter, I pray that you would move us to bring our friends uh, bring those who maybe are somewhat skeptical or unsure. And then you might do a work and we might see one of these movements. We might see a harvest. Lord, bring people who need to hear your gospel. Help us to preach it in our world, in our work, wherever else we are. But also, Lord, bring them here. That's also biblical. 
Let us experience something like happened at Pentecost when all of a sudden there was this big service of worship and you moved and 3,000 people were saved right there at a worship service. Can you imagine? Would you do that kind of thing as well? God, work and continue to grow our church in strength and in numbers, particularly those who you're adding to us, those who are being saved day by day as you did in your early church. Thank you for all that you've done and all that you're doing. May the things that we're doing in your name bear fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.